Beantwortung der Frage, was ist Aufklärung? Von Immanuel Kant Aufklärung ist der Ausgang des Menschen aus seiner selbstverschuldeten Unmündigkeit. Unmündigkeit ist das Unvermögen, sich seines Verstandes ohne Leitung eines anderen zu bedienen. Selbstverschuldet ist diese Unmündigkeit, wenn die Ursache derselben nicht am Mangel des Verstandes, sondern der Entschließung und des Mutes liegt, sich seiner ohne Leitung eines anderen zu bedienen. Sapere aude, habe Mut, dich deines eigenen Verstandes zu bedienen, ist also der Wahlspruch der Aufklärung. Faulheit und Feigheit sind die Ursachen, warum ein so großer Teil der Menschen, nachdem sie die Natur längst von fremder Leitung freigesprochen, naturaliter majorennes, dennoch gerne zeitlebens unmündig bleiben, und warum es anderen so leicht wird, sich zu deren Vormündern aufzuwerfen. Es ist so bequem, unmündig zu sein. Habe ich ein Buch, das für mich Verstand hat, einen Seelsorger, der für mich Gewissen hat, einen Arzt, der für mich die Diät beurteilt, und so weiter, so brauche ich mich ja nicht selbst zu bemühen. Ich habe nicht nötig zu denken, wenn ich nur bezahlen kann. Andere werden das verdrießliche Geschäft schon für mich übernehmen. Dass der bei weitem größte Teil der Menschen, darunter das ganze schöne Geschlecht, den Schritt zur Mündigkeit, außer dem, dass er beschwerlich ist, auch für sehr gefährlich halte, dafür sorgen schon jene Vormünder, die die Oberaufsicht über sie gütigst auf sich genommen haben. Nachdem sie ihr Hausvieh zuerst dumm gemacht haben und sorgfältig verhüteten, dass diese ruhigen Geschöpfe ja keinen Schritt außer dem Gängelwagen, darin sie sie einsperrten, wagen durften, so zeigen sie ihnen nachher die Gefahr, die ihnen droht, wenn sie es versuchen, allein zu gehen. Nun ist diese Gefahr zwar eben so groß nicht, denn sie würden durch einige Mal fallen, wohl endlich gehen lernen. Allein ein Beispiel von der Art macht doch schüchtern und schreckt gemeinhin von allen ferneren Versuchen ab. Es ist also für jeden einzelnen Menschen schwer, sich aus der ihm beinahe zur Natur gewordenen Unmündigkeit herauszuarbeiten. Er hat sie sogar liebgewonnen und ist vor der Hand wirklich unfähig, sich seines eigenen Verstandes zu bedienen, weil man ihn niemals den Versuch davon machen ließ. Satzungen und Formeln, diese mechanischen Werkzeuge eines vernünftigen Gebrauchs, oder vielmehr Missbrauchs seiner Naturgaben, sind die Fußschellen einer immerwährenden Unmündigkeit. Wer sie auch abwürfe, würde dennoch auch über den schmalsten Graben einen nur unsicheren Sprung tun, weil er zu dergleichen freier Bewegung nicht gewöhnt ist. Daher gibt es nur wenige, denen es gelungen ist, durch eigene Bearbeitung ihres Geistes sich aus der Unmündigkeit herauszuwickeln und dennoch einen sicheren Gang zu tun. 
Zu dieser Aufklärung aber wird nichts erfordert als Freiheit, und zwar die unschädlichste unter allem, was nur Freiheit heißen mag, nämlich die, von seiner Vernunft in allen Stücken öffentlichen Gebrauch zu machen. Nun höre ich aber von allen Seiten rufen, resoniert nicht. Der Offizier sagt, resoniert nicht, sondern exerziert. Der Finanzrat, resoniert nicht, sondern bezahlt. Der Geistliche, resoniert nicht, sondern glaubt. Nur ein einziger Herr in der Welt sagt, resoniert so viel ihr wollt und worüber ihr wollt, aber gehorcht. Hier ist überall Einschränkung der Freiheit. Welche Einschränkung aber ist der Aufklärung hinderlich, welche nicht, sondern ihr Wohlgabe förderlich? Ich antworte, der öffentliche Gebrauch seiner Vernunft muß jederzeit frei sein, und der allein kann Aufklärung unter Menschen zustande bringen. Der Privatgebrauch derselben aber darf öfters sehr enge eingeschränkt sein, ohne doch darum den Fortschritt der Aufklärung sonderlich zu hindern. Ich verstehe aber unter dem öffentlichen Gebrauch seiner eigenen Vernunft denjenigen, den jemand als Gelehrter von ihr vor dem ganzen Publikum der Leserwelt macht. Den Privatgebrauch nenne ich denjenigen, den er in einem gewissen ihm anvertrauten bürgerlichen Posten oder Amte von seiner Vernunft machen darf. An answer to the question, what is enlightenment? By Immanuel Kant. Enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-incurred immaturity. Immaturity is the inability to use one's own understanding without the guidance of another. This immaturity is self-incurred if its cause is not lack of understanding, but lack of resolution and courage to use it without the guidance of another. The motto of enlightenment is therefore sapere auda, have courage to use your own understanding. Laziness and cowardice are the reasons why such a large proportion of men, even when nature has long emancipated them from alien guidance, naturaliter majorenis, nevertheless gladly remain immature for life. For the same reasons, it is all too easy for others to set themselves up as their guardians. It is so convenient to be immature. If I have a book to have understanding in place of me, a spiritual adviser to have a conscience for me, a doctor to judge my diet for me, and so on, I need not make any efforts at all. I need not think so long as I can pay. Others will soon take the tiresome job over for me. The guardians who have kindly taken upon themselves the work of supervision will soon see to it that by far the largest part of mankind, including the entire fair sex, should consider the step forward to maturity not only as difficult, but also as highly dangerous. Having first infatuated their domesticated animals, and carefully prevented the docile creatures from daring to take a single step without the leading strings to which they are tied, they next show them the danger which threatens them if they try to walk unaided. Now this danger is not in fact so very great, for they would certainly learn to walk eventually after a few falls. But an example of this kind is intimidating, 
and usually frightens them off from further attempts. Thus it is difficult for each separate individual to work his way out of the immaturity which has become almost second nature to him. He has even grown fond of it, and is really incapable, for the time being, of using his own understanding, because he was never allowed to make the attempt. Dogmas and formulas, those mechanical instruments for rational use, or rather misuse, of his natural endowments, are the ball and chain of his permanent immaturity. And if anyone did throw them off, he would still be uncertain about jumping over even the narrowest of trenches, for he would be unaccustomed to free movement of this kind. Thus only a few, by cultivating their own minds, have succeeded in freeing themselves from immaturity, and in continuing boldly on their way. For enlightenment of this kind, all that is needed is freedom, and the freedom in question is the most innocuous form of all, the freedom to make public use of one's reason in all matters. But I hear on all sides the cry, Don't argue. The officer says, Don't argue, get on parade. The tax official, Don't argue, pay. The clergyman, Don't argue, believe. Only one ruler in the world says, Argue as much as you like and about whatever you like, but obey. All this means restrictions on freedom everywhere. But which sort of restriction prevents enlightenment, and which instead of hindering it can actually promote it? I reply, the public use of man's reason must always be free, and it alone can bring about enlightenment among men. The private use of reason may quite often be very narrowly restricted, however, without undue hindrance to the progress of enlightenment. But by the public use of one's own reason, I mean that use which anyone may make of it as a man of learning addressing the entire reading public. What I term the private use of reason is that which a person may make of it in a particular civil post or office with which he is entrusted. Immanuel Kant is widely regarded as the paradigm of the Enlightenment philosopher, not least because of his famous essay titled, In Answer to the Question, What is Enlightenment?, which we've just heard excerpts from in the original German and in English translation, read by Christian Alkadi and Leon Meyer of LibriVox, respectively. Wittgenstein himself notoriously once grew irate when a visiting Oxford student began quoting Kant in German at a Saturday morning discussion with G. E. Moore. Wittgenstein told the student to shut up, which he later regretted. While German was of course Wittgenstein's native language, he thought the move of quoting Kant in German a bit too pretentious for an Oxford undergraduate, and we know that Wittgenstein struggled with his own pride and pretension his whole life. Hopefully, you don't find my excerpting Kant's lovely German prose too irrelevant or pretentious, but if, like Wittgenstein, you prefer it I shut up, you're more than welcome to stop listening here. If not, I'll be quoting Kant whenever possible, in German and English, to remind monolingual Anglophone listeners that philosophy is a multilingual, multicultural endeavor, and that we lose an immeasurable wealth of knowledge when we only listen to familiar voices, or voices we can understand. Despite the 1930 episode recounted by Maurice O'Connell Drury, we know that Wittgenstein's ire cannot have been because he disliked Kant. On the contrary, according to Ray Monk's famous 1990 biography of Wittgenstein, The Duty of Genius, Wittgenstein in fact studied Kant's critique of pure reason, presumably in the original German, line by line with his friend Ludwig Hensel during World War I. 
Kant was also one of the philosophers Wittgenstein called profound as opposed to shallow, though we should perhaps take Wittgenstein's assessments of other philosophers with a grain of salt, given his own self-proclaimed philosophical illiteracy. In any case, Kant and Wittgenstein are both indeed profound, as well as profoundly idiosyncratic thinkers, and they have often been compared and contrasted, with philosophers such as Stanley Cavell emphasizing their similarities, with others, like Peter Hacker, downplaying the similarities. Whatever one makes of their other similarities and differences, one interesting area in which to compare and contrast Kant and Wittgenstein is in their thought about religion. Nevertheless, this episode focuses primarily on Kant rather than Wittgenstein. There is no shortage of commentaries on Kant's essay on Enlightenment, so today I thought I'd focus on the implications of the essay for the religious and for religious leaders, pastors, priests, and other clergy, and subsequently for philosophers of religion. Kant's famous essay was published in the December 1784 issue of the Berlinische Monatschrift. It was one response among many to the question, namely, what is enlightenment, posed a year earlier by the Reverend Johann Friedrich Zollner, an official in the Prussian government. Kant answers this question in the opening words of his essay, Enlightenment is man's emergence from his self-incurred immaturity. The word here translated as immaturity is unmündigkeit, while Unmundigkeit has variously been translated, and there seem to be innumerable translations of Kant's essay, as immaturity, non-age, minority, and tutelage, it is important to keep in mind that Unmundigkeit, derived from the German Mund for mouth, is literally an inability to speak for oneself in a legal or political sense. Just as children and teenagers below the age of majority cannot vote and therefore speak for themselves politically, but must trust their parents, or, as is a posit here, their legal guardians, to act and speak in their interest, the philosophically immature must trust the Vormünden, or those who speak for them. Kant, of course, gives his own definition of this immaturity in saying that Unmündigkeit is the inability to use one's own understanding without another's guidance. At the same time, Kant is clear that this immaturity is not a cognitive incapacity, as it might be in the case of a literally immature child. Unmundigkeit is perhaps in the end not so much an inability as an unwillingness, as Kant says when he goes on to add that this immaturity is self-incurred, not when a person can't think for themselves, but rather won't. In other words, doesn't want to. Because immaturity is a problem of the will rather than the intellect, and here we can note the similarity of Kant's view of enlightenment to Wittgenstein's view of philosophy, the motto of the enlightenment is sapere aude, not simply be smarter, but dare to be wise, have the audacity to think for yourself. If I have a book to have understanding for me, Kant jokes, a spiritual advisor to have a conscience for me, a doctor to judge my diet for me, and so on, I need not make any effort at all. I need not think, so long as I can pay. We see here emerge one of the central themes and philosophical achievements of the Enlightenment and early modernity, the ideal of autonomy. While autonomy is far from simple, and today is probably more closely related to the notion of self-determination, or the sheer libertarian prerogative to run or ruin one's own life, for Kant, autonomy is about rational self-governance. Rationality, and hence morality as well, just is those laws by which a rational agent would govern themselves. Autonomy for Kant is primarily a matter of the will as well. If autonomy consists in having a rational hold and command over oneself, heteronomy is the defect of allowing one's will to be determined by something other than oneself. 
whether by tyrannous other people or the mad masters of one's passions, emotions, and irrational motivations, above all, the pathological drive to be happy. Kant certainly earns his caricature as a gloomy, post-pietist killjoy. But Kant's focus in the beginning of his essay appears to be external causes of heteronomy, those whom he calls the guardians, diformunden, in an apparent gesture to the paternalistic philosopher-police force of Plato's Republic, or, more likely, the Prussian thought police. Having basically domesticated and trained their docile flock of human sheep to fear governing and thinking for themselves, the guardians ensure that the fear of failure and the unfamiliar will prevent people from even trying. In such a system, it is difficult for individuals to grow out of their immaturity on their own, since despite indeed being foreign or heteronymous to us, Unmundigkeit has become our second nature. Dogmas and formulas, which were ostensibly meant as tools of reason, become the balls and chains tethering the human herd to their subjugated state. Nevertheless, Kant grants there have always been a few select individuals, we can presume himself included, who have been able to reach enlightenment on their own. There are even enlightened individuals among the guardians. Such enlightened individuals could, in principle, disseminate the spirit of enlightenment through their work and writing, bringing more and more of the common people from immaturity to maturity. The problem arises when reactionary factions among the guardians leverage their influence over common people's minds and cause even enlightened guardians to be silenced and subjugated. A revolution, such as the American or French, might temporarily upset the status quo and end one kind of tyranny, but without enlightenment, that is, a reform in the ways of thinking, and the bravery and determination to think for oneself, Kant claims that even after an apparent revolution, new prejudices, new dogmas will control the unthinking masses. Something I think we can see played out, for instance, when people misinterpret their personal liberties to include the flouting of public safety or contempt for scientific consensus. For all these reasons, the long road to enlightenment can only be traversed by population slowly. The enlightenment of the population, however, Kant optimistically avers, is almost inevitable. As long as people are given freedom, and not only the freedom to vote, to not wear a stuffy face mask, or to buy up a stock of toilet paper, more specifically, Kant has in mind the freedom to publish, though perhaps Twitter and TikTok might force Kant to rethink the value of publication. As Kant says, the public use of man's reason must always be free, and it alone can bring about enlightenment among men. By the public use of reason, Kant is of course referring to publishing one's idea for a public, and necessarily literate, intellectual readership. While Kant grants that the private use of reason, that connected with certain civil posts such as government and military officials, along with state-funded clergy, can and even should be restricted, one must be able to voice one's criticisms through the public medium of print. Just as it would set a dangerous precedent for simple soldiers to challenge their superiors on the battlefield, or for tax officials to quibble with the tax code while on the job, or for priests and pastors to preach their own personal ideas as official doctrines in a Sunday sermon, while on the job, so to speak, one must obey and uphold the authorities one is beholden to, the most obvious in Kant's case being the Prussian emperor. While off-duty, so to speak, one can and must take to Twitter, or rather the printing press, to call out injustice, inefficiency, and of course, immaturity. Kant's focus on religious leaders is worth quoting in full. Ebenso ist ein Geistlicher verbunden, seinen Katechismusschülern und seiner Gemeinde nach dem Symbol der Kirche, der er dient, seinen Vortrag zu tun. 
denn er ist auf diese Bedingung angenommen worden. Aber als Gelehrter hat er volle Freiheit, ja sogar den Beruf dazu, alle seine sorgfältig geprüften und wohlmeinenden Gedanken über das Fehlerhafte in jenem Symbol und Vorschläge wegen besserer Einrichtung des Religions- und Kirchenwesens dem Publikum mitzuteilen. Es ist hiebei auch nichts, was dem Gewissen zur Last gelegt werden könnte. Denn was er infolge seines Amts als Geschäftträger der Kirche lehrt, das stellt er als etwas vor, in Ansehung dessen er nicht freie Gewalt hat, nach eigenem Gutdünken zu lehren, sondern dass er nach Vorschrift und im Namen eines anderen vorzutragen angestellt ist. Er wird sagen, unsere Kirche lehrt dieses oder jenes, das sind die Beweisgründe, deren sie sich bedient. Er zieht alsdann allen praktischen Nutzen für seine Gemeinde aus Satzungen, die er selbst nicht mit voller Überzeugung unterschreiben würde, zu deren Vortrag er sich gleichwohl anheischig machen kann, weil es doch nicht ganz unmöglich ist, dass darin Wahrheit verborgen läge. Auf alle Fälle aber wenigstens doch nichts der inneren Religion Widersprechendes darin angetroffen wird. Denn glaubte er das Letztere darin zu finden, so würde er sein Amt mit Gewissen nicht verwalten können. Er müsste es niederlegen. Der Gebrauch also, den ein angestellter Lehrer von seiner Vernunft vor seiner Gemeinde macht, ist bloß ein Privatgebrauch, weil diese immer nur eine häusliche, obwohl noch so große Versammlung ist. Und in Ansehung dessen, ist er als Priester nicht frei und darf es auch nicht sein, weil er einen fremden Auftrag ausrichtet. Dagegen als Gelehrter, der durch Schriften zum eigentlichen Publikum, nämlich der Welt, spricht, mithin der Geistliche im öffentlichen Gebrauche seiner Vernunft, genießt eine uneingeschränkte Freiheit, sich seiner eigenen Vernunft zu bedienen, und in seiner eigenen Person zu sprechen. Denn dass die Vormünder des Volks in geistlichen Dingen selbst wieder unmündig sein sollen, ist eine Ungereimtheit, die auf Verewigung der Ungereimtheiten hinausläuft. In the same way, a clergyman is bound to instruct his pupils and his congregation in accordance with the doctrines of the church he serves, for he was employed by it on that condition. But as a scholar, he is completely free, as well as obliged, to impart to the public all his carefully considered, well-intentioned thoughts on the mistaken aspects of those doctrines, and to offer suggestions for a better arrangement of religious and ecclesiastical affairs. And there is nothing in this which need trouble the conscience. What he teaches in pursuit of his duties, as an active servant of the church, is presented by him as something which he is not empowered to teach at his own discretion, but which he is employed to expound in a prescribed manner and in someone else's name. He will say, Our church teaches this or that, and these are the arguments it uses. He then extracts as much practical value as possible for his congregation from precepts to which he would not himself subscribe with full conviction, but which he can nevertheless undertake to expound, since it is not in fact wholly impossible that they may contain truth. 
At all events, nothing opposed to the essence of religion is present in such doctrines. For if the clergyman thought he could find anything of this sort in them, he would not be able to carry out his official duties in good conscience, and would have to resign. Thus, the use which someone employed as a teacher makes of his reason in the presence of his congregation is purely private, since a congregation, however large it is, is never any more than a domestic gathering. In view of this, he is not and cannot be free as a priest, since he is acting on a commission imposed from outside. Conversely, as a scholar, addressing the real public, i.e. the world at large, through his writings, the clergyman making public use of his reason enjoys unlimited freedom to use his own reason and to speak in his own person. For to maintain that the guardians of the people in spiritual matters should themselves be immature is an absurdity which amounts to making absurdities permanent. One may well wonder whether Kant has his categories confused. After all, in contemporary times, it is precisely because religion is considered to be a private and personal affair that, at least in the United States, for example, the government is prohibited from interfering with the so-called freedom of religion, unless, as in the case of child or animal abuse or extremist ideologies, such religion infringes on others' freedoms and safety. We can leave entirely to one side for now the objection that religious convictions regularly undermine legislative autonomy in the form of political lobbies, or even by informing the consciences of legislators who are both private citizens and public officials. In Kant's historical context, the risk went the other way around. The point is simply that it is easy to get the impression that it is the so-called private sphere that is the domain of our individual rights and freedoms, while the so-called public sphere is the domain of responsibilities and compromises. For Kant, so it seems, it was the other way around. A more serious objection to Kant's vision of the liberal, enlightened, if divided, cleric might come in philosopher Terry Godlove's claim that, while liberal theology has come under fire from many directions in the 20th and 21st centuries, it is hard to escape the thought that Kant sent it, that is, liberal theology, into the world with a fatal instability that the attempt to accommodate Christianity to modernity requires an impossible fidelity both to tradition and to intellectual respectability. Kant writes of a pastor extracting as much practical value as possible for his congregation from precepts to which he himself would not subscribe with full conviction, but which he can nevertheless undertake to expound, since it is not in fact wholly impossible that they may contain truth. Despite his pietist Lutheran upbringing and education, Kant had obviously forgotten what most Sunday sermons are like, since typically, preachers are not simply trying to milk a biblical passage for possible practical insights on the tenuous hypothesis that the Bible might contain a grain of truth. Obviously, the practice, if not the industry, of Christian sermonizing is predicated on the old-time religious conviction that, as St. Paul tells his pupil Timothy, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. 
As we will one day see when we take an in-depth look at Kant's philosophy of religion, Kant does indeed have an interpretation of this oft-quoted, much-loved, seemingly self-reflexive passage of the Bible. For now, let's continue to hear out Kant's reasoning. In expounding practical principles from precepts a priest or pastor may not personally subscribe to, at least not with full conviction, at all events, nothing opposed to the essence of religion is presented in such doctrines, for if the clergyman thought he could find anything of this sort, that is, anything opposed to the essence of religion in them, that is, the biblical or dogmatic precepts of his church, he would not be able to carry out his official duties in, in good conscience and would have to resign. As a priest or pastor, a person must toe the official line of his denomination. As a scholar and public intellectual, however, he has, or ought to have, unlimited freedom of speech and thought, as long as he can don his beretta or Canterbury cap on Sundays, while saving his thinking cap for weekdays and academic conferences. Kant seems certain that confronted with an intransigent moral dilemma in his religious doctrine, an enlightened cleric would rather resign than dissemble. But are priests and pastors, in fact, incapable of the kind of duplicity Kant fears? Does it go without saying that a religious person, besotted by doubts, would walk away rather than live a lie? Kant himself was, of course, notoriously, if not pathologically, averse to dishonesty, but it seems that it is Kant himself who puts us between a rock and a hard place by driving a schizophrenic wedge between public and private reason. Moreover, there is the problem of tradition. Much is often made of the apparently antagonistic epistemic dichotomy between faith and reason, or between religion and science. It often goes unnoticed that the stronger, because existential tension, is between individuals and their communities, whether they're families, friend groups, colleagues, or indeed co-religionist. Kant seems to envision solitary scholars like himself publishing their enlightened ideas in public if impenetrable prose. He forgets, if he ever knew, that unless one is a hermit, one must still square one's ideas with one's social circle. The English word religion comes from a Latin word meaning binding together. One of the hallmarks of religion is that if one is religious, one does not simply believe one's religion, but belongs to it, is bound by and beholden to it, often in the form of tradition. Kant has a response here, too. Aber sollte nicht eine Gesellschaft von Geistlichen, etwa eine Kirchenversammlung oder eine ehrwürdige Klassis, wie sie sich unter den Holländern selbst nennt, berechtigt sein, sich eidlich untereinander auf ein gewisses unveränderliches Symbol zu verpflichten, um so eine unaufhörliche Obervormundschaft über jedes ihrer Glieder und vermittels ihrer über das Volk zu führen, und diese sogar zu verewigen? Ich sage, das ist ganz unmöglich. Ein solcher Kontrakt, der auf immer alle weitere Aufklärung vom Menschengeschlechte abzuhalten geschlossen würde, ist schlechterdings null und nichtig, und sollte er auch durch die oberste Gewalt, durch Reichstage und die feierlichsten Friedensschlüsse bestätigt sein. Ein Zeitalter kann sich nicht verbünden und darauf verschwören, das Folgende in einen Zustand zu setzen, darin es ihm unmöglich werden muß, seine vornehmlich so sehr angelegentliche Erkenntnisse zu erweitern, von Irrtümern zu reinigen und überhaupt in der Aufklärung weiterzuschreiten. Das wäre ein Verbrechen wider die menschliche Natur, 
deren ursprüngliche Bestimmung gerade in diesem Fortschreiten besteht, und die Nachkommen sind also vollkommen dazu berechtigt, jene Beschlüsse als unbefugter und frevelhafter Weise genommen zu verwerfen. Aber auf eine beharrliche, von niemanden öffentlich zu bezweifelnde Religionsverfassung auch nur binnen der Lebensdauer eines Menschen sich zu einigen und dadurch einen Zeitraum in dem Fortgange der Menschheit zur Verbesserung gleichsam zu vernichten und fruchtlos, dadurch aber wohl gar der Nachkommenschaft nachteilig zu machen, ist schlechterdings unerlaubt. Ein Mensch kann zwar für seine Person und auch alsdann nur auf einige Zeit in dem, was ihm zu wissen obliegt, die Aufklärung aufschieben, aber auf sie Verzicht zu tun, es sei für seine Person, mehr aber noch für die Nachkommenschaft, heißt die heiligen Rechte der Menschheit verletzen und mit Füßen treten. But should not a society of clergymen, for example an ecclesiastical synod, or a venerable presbytery, as the Dutch call it, be entitled to commit itself by oath to a certain unalterable set of doctrines, in order to secure for all time a constant guardianship over each of its members, and through them over the people? I reply that this is quite impossible. A contract of this kind, concluded with a view to preventing all further enlightenment of mankind forever, is absolutely null and void, even if it is ratified by the supreme power by imperial diets and the most solemn peace treaties. One age cannot enter into an alliance on oath to put the next age in a position where it would be impossible for it to extend and correct its knowledge, particularly on such important matters, or to make any progress whatsoever in enlightenment. This would be a crime against human nature, whose original destiny lies precisely in such progress. Later generations are thus perfectly entitled to dismiss these agreements as unauthorized and criminal. But it is absolutely impermissible to agree, even for a single lifetime, to a permanent religious constitution which no one might publicly question, for this would virtually nullify a phase in man's upward progress, thus making it fruitless and even detrimental to subsequent generations. A man may, for his own person, and even then for only a limited period, postpone enlightening himself in matters he ought to know about. But to renounce such enlightenment completely, whether for his own person, or even more so for later generations, means violating and trampling underfoot the sacred rights of mankind. It is worth noting here, that Kant sounds a good deal like Martin Luther before the Diet of Worms over two centuries earlier, in 1521. Remember that at the Diet, Martin Luther completed his defense before the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V by saying, Since your most serene majesty and your high mightinesses require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give you one, and it is this. I cannot submit my faith, either to the Pope or to the Council, because it is as clear as noonday that they have fallen into error, and even into glaring inconsistency with themselves. If, then, I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture, or by cogent reasons, if I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, 
and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will retract anything, for it cannot be right for a Christian to speak against his country. I stand here and can say no more. God help me. Amen. Once again, we see, even in Luther's words, the result of what we might call the voluntaristic turn of the late Middle Ages and early modernity. No longer primarily concerned with philosophical and theological theorizing, or with specious and sophistical scholasticism, for Luther, as for Kant two centuries later, and arguably for Wittgenstein even later, Christianity was a matter of the will and conscience. Luther claimed to be unconvinced by the only human popes and councils of the Catholic Church. But for that reason, he would not, in other words, he willed not, to recant his Protestant teachings. Similarly, for Kant, perhaps the unenlightened could not, for lack of experience and freedom, think for themselves, but their Unmündigkeit was culpable because in the end, they didn't want to think for themselves. And while we know from his essay on philosophy that Wittgenstein thought of the difficulties of philosophy as a difficulty of the will rather than the intellect, he seemed to think something similar about religion. In Culture and Value, he wrote, Christianity is not a doctrine, not I mean a theory about what has happened and will happen to the human soul, but a description of something that actually takes place in human life. For consciousness of sin is a real event, and so are despair and salvation through faith. Those who speak of such things, Bunyan, for instance, are simply describing what has happened to them, whatever gloss anyone may want to put on it. However, we should be wary of classifying Kant and Wittgenstein, however tempting it may be, as convicted, if conflicted, Christians like Luther. While perhaps culturally Christian, in some sense, both Kant and Wittgenstein apparently identified as agnostics, though many have thought this was a cunning cover for a covert Christianity. Wittgenstein, who was impressed, if not influenced, by the anti-Christian polemics of Nietzsche and the anti-Christendom polemics of Kierkegaard, was occasionally, startlingly, critical of the Catholic religion of his upbringing. For instance, he also wrote in Culture and Value. The effect of making men think in accordance with dogmas, perhaps in the form of certain graphic propositions, will be very peculiar. I am not thinking of these dogmas as determining men's opinions, but rather as completely controlling the expression of all opinions. People will live under an absolute, palpable tyranny, though without being able to say they are not free. I think the Catholic Church does something rather like this, for dogma is expressed in the form of an assertion, and is unshakable, but at the same time any practical opinion can be made to harmonize with it, admittedly more easily in some cases than others. It is not a wall setting limits to what can be believed, but more like a break, which, however, practically serves the same purpose. It's almost as though someone were to attach a weight to your foot to restrict your freedom of movement. This is how dogma becomes irrefutable and beyond the reach of attack. Luther, Kant, and Wittgenstein were each opposed to a kind of dogmatism that sometimes passes for philosophical axiom and other times masquerades as religious conviction. But it's worth asking whether one, or all of them, do not succumb to their own enlightened dogmatisms. There will be plenty of time in future episodes to probe Wittgenstein's own weaknesses of the will and the alleged dogmatisms of Wittgensteinians. For now, we can look at Luther and Kant.
It is ironic, to say the least, that one of the chief axioms of the Magisterial Reformation, the doctrine of sola scriptura, is itself nowhere to be found in scripture. It is equally ironic that what began as a Catholic heresy, namely Lutheranism itself, should one day give rise to reactionaries such as the imperial diets and consistories that would censor Kant, and would even, in places now as liberal as Scandinavia, give rise to literal witch hunts, as portrayed, for instance, in the excellent 1943 film Vredensdag, or Day of Wrath. As for Kant himself, Bertrand Russell famously wrote in his 1927 essay, Why I'm Not a Christian, Kant was like many people, in intellectual matters he was skeptical, but in moral matters he believed implicitly in the maxims that he had imbibed at his mother's knee. That illustrates what the psychoanalysts so much emphasize, the immensely stronger hold upon us that our very early associations have than those of later times. On a more serious note, Kant's rational and moral ideal of autonomous agency is hard to make sense of. Kant says that Unmundigkeit is the inability to use one's own understanding without the guidance of another. But is it plausible to suppose that as finite, embodied, and social creatures, it is even possible for us to think for ourselves without any guidance from anyone? It seems to smack of what virtue epistemologist Linda Zagzebski calls epistemic egoism, and which, by the way, Kant himself disavows in his lectures on logic. But then, where is the line between dogmatism and tradition, between immaturity and the childlike faith commended by Jesus? Is Kant's faith in reason and his optimism concerning the inevitability of enlightenment itself a quasi-religious or philosophical dogma? I don't have an answer ready to hand, but I'm strongly reminded of certain things said by the Wittgensteinian philosopher Stanley Cavell in his magisterial work, The Claim of Reason. The philosophical appeal to what we say, and the search for our criteria on the basis of which we say what we say, are claims to community. And the claim to community is always a search for the basis upon which it can or has been established. I have nothing more to go on than my conviction, my sense that I make sense. It may prove to be the case that I am wrong, then my conviction isolates me from all others, from myself. That will not be the same as a discovery that I am dogmatic or egomaniacal. The wish and search for community are the wish and search for reason. A little later, in commenting on one of Wittgenstein's philosophical parables, the one at paragraph 52 of P.I. about the mouse, Cavell continues that the nature of philosophizing is an examination that exposes one's convictions, one's sense of what must and what cannot be the case. So it requires a breaking up of one's sense of necessity, to discover truer necessities. To do that, I have to get into the state of mind in which I'm inclined to suppose that something I take to be impossible may be happening which means that I have to experiment in believing what I take to be prejudices and consider that my rationality may itself be a set of prejudices. In closing, it may be best to review why Kant's essay on enlightenment focuses so strongly on religion. Kant writes, Ich habe den Hauptpunkt der Aufklärung das ist des Ausgangs der Menschen aus ihrer selbstverschuldeten Unmündigkeit, vorzüglich in Religionssachen gesetzt, weil in Ansehung der Künste und Wissenschaften unsere Beherrscher kein Interesse haben, 
den Vormund über ihre Untertanen zu spielen, über dem auch jene Unmündigkeit sowie die schädlichste, also auch die entehrendste unter allen ist. I have portrayed matters of religion as the focal point of enlightenment, i.e. of man's emergence from his self-incurred immaturity. This is firstly because our rulers have no interest in assuming the role of guardians over their subjects so far as the arts and sciences are concerned, and secondly because religious immaturity is the most pernicious and dishonorable variety of all. One can see that while Kant's famous answer to the question, what is enlightenment, is straightforward in theory, it is difficult, if not excruciating, in practice, the precise location where it matters most. For one thing, Kant wants us to break free from the shackles of tradition and the yoke of blind obedience. He wants us to stumble, make mistakes, and learn from them. He wants us to dare to think for ourselves, making use of our own understanding. But he downplays the fact that doing so is likely to separate us, at least occasionally, and at most, perpetually, from our communities and histories. We are to trade tradition for autonomy. But of what value is rational self-rule when the kingdom one reigns over is a sovereign solitude? Is it worth the effort? Doubtless Kant would maintain that it is, but it is reasonable to be a bit uneasy with what Kant, and perhaps reason itself, demands of us. Moreover, an initial fear is precisely what Kant predicted when a self-sabotaging, immature person is faced with freedom. And now for the homework. Do you think Kant is right? Is it true that religious immaturity is the worst kind of immaturity of all? Why would or wouldn't it be? If you are religious, do you think you think for yourself? Or do you rely excessively on your scriptures, your spiritual leaders, and your circle of peers to determine what you believe and why? If you aren't religious, are you perhaps too self-reliant? Is your intellectual autonomy perhaps a facade, hiding an implicit egoism or lack of trust in others? Finally, what kind of community are you searching for? The quest for enlightenment, whether spiritual or philosophical, is, Kant will ultimately think, a communal endeavor. Who we surround ourselves with, and who we are willing to listen to, will determine what we can learn and achieve. And of course, unless you are a rugged individual like Kant himself, we need all the help that we can get. We will continue to answer these questions, or at least refine the questions themselves, in future episodes on Kant and the philosophy of religion. But till next time, this has been Faith in the Flybottle.